You're listening to Contesting Wrestling. This is a podcast where we try to understand why people enjoy wrestling. Why wrestling is a thing that you should do with your time. When I say people, I mean me, because I don't understand those things. But my co-hosts, who are also some of my closest friends that I've known for a very long time, they do understand these things. They understand them so hard, they have dedicated some percentage of their professional lives to wrestling. Whereas I'm just over here like... What even, why even am I watching this right now? What, why have I made these choices? So, if you're like me, hey, this should be interesting for you. And if you're like them, perhaps it'll give you a new perspective on what, right? Like, if you're somebody who's tried to get your friends into wrestling, and you're like, I don't understand why they're not into it. Maybe this will help you get some perspective on that. Um, or maybe you just don't listen to your friends, and that's a thing that you need to deal with in your own time. My name is Evan Burke. I'm a writer. I'm on Twitter at Evan Burke, etc. You can follow me there for it's not there's no wrestling there. So if you're a wrestling fan and you're here to, and you want to hear that from me, that's not it's not going on. You can follow us at Contesting W, and there's all 24/7 wrestling going on on that part. Anyway, kicking this over to my co-hosts for more introductions. All right, well, my name is Dr. Diamondfire. I've been involved in wrestling for well over a decade now. Um, I've done wrestling, commentary, ring announcing, a little bit of everything, like I like to say. I'm very happy to be on this podcast with everybody, and I hope you enjoy. I'm Dr. Ben Abelson, professor of philosophy at Mercy College, a lifelong consumer of the product that is professional wrestling. And our other co-host. Oh, I didn't realize your introduction was going to be so short, Ben. Usually, yeah. usually you're the long-winded one. Um, uh, it is me, Katie Vela. I can be followed on Twitter at RefKatie, K-A-T-Y. If you misspell it, you will not find me, so you should probably remember that. I've been a referee since 2017. I've been in wrestling since 2014. I've been a fan of wrestling since 2003. Uh, Captain Romance is the devil. Let's get started. I I just finished writing a paper last night, so I think uh, I might be a little shorter on wind than usual. But... <laughs> So my best extra wind. You should have ate more beans, then you'd have plenty of wind. That's a that's a deep cut. Yes. Because farts, yes. get it? The, the musical fruit and all. So today, we're this is an episode that's been brewing pretty much since the beginning of this. Um, today we are covering one of the most well known wrestlers ever. One of the only people who I really knew about before we started this podcast. We we're talking about the Undertaker. Who I would venture a guess, even if Hulk Hogan and The Rock and John Cena are more popular, I feel like there is an, a near universal awareness that The Undertaker is a guy who exists and is a wrestler. Like, no, maybe, like nobody, maybe, and is live. Nobody who isn't yes. in wrestling will say The Undertaker if you ask them, name a pro wrestler. But if you say to them, have you heard of the pro wrestler The Undertaker? They'll all go, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know, I know who The Undertaker is. And and like him, right? So I think maybe just as many people know who Hulk Hogan is, but everyone thinks The Undertaker is cool. And and that is not the case for the Hulkster. And I, I'm going to say, like, outside of what I have seen 
so far, both of The Undertaker and of wrestling in general, outside of like the modern era where people have, where I feel like people have really taken characters and the theatricality and stuff to a whole new level. So sort of like excising, you know, maybe like the last 10 years of wrestling. Um, I cannot imagine anybody executing a character better than this. Like this seems like some of the shit that we watched today, I was like, yes, this is what you would fucking watch the WWE for. This is what, this is the whole point, right? Like, is, I feel I, like, yeah. Undertaker is kind of like the Vertigo comics of wrestling where like uh, Vince McMahon turned wrestlers into cartoon characters or comic book characters. And then Undertaker was like, well, what if we could make one of those really cool you know, and dark and interesting and open the door for more characters like that in the way it kind of like Alan Moore's original run on Swamp thing or something like that. And and, I mean, similar to like, say, an Alan Moore character or Sam or something like that, like the Undertaker also has the advantage of being an archetypical figure that has existed in human fiction and myth since before written or probably even spoken language. Um, (laughs) Like we were probably grunting to each other about the concept of death incarnate before there were words to really think. So, you know, he he definitely locks into this like archetype um, mm-hmm. and it's cool. Cause he's not, it's, 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 it seems like it's loose enough of a definition cause he's not death necessarily. Right. And he's not a zombie and he's not a, but he could be any of those things at any time. It's like, it's just sort of, he's sort of, there's just a big tent of death related magic stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you think about an undertaker or, you know, a mortician or something, and I mean, it, this kind of feeds into like stereotypes about them, I guess. But, you know, the people who spend that much time with death, you start to think like, well, maybe they have some kind of connection to death that goes beyond just their vocation. And I think it's it's that sort of those sorts of thoughts that lead into the Undertaker character. Like maybe he's really dead himself. If you want to if you want to know about people who have spent a lot of time with death, you, you look no further than Paul Bear, the Undertaker's manager, who is a real licensed mortician. He uh, maintained his mortician's license the entire time he was active as a wrestler. He always knew if uh, he wanted to have something to fall back on. And there had been times in his career where he wasn't used for a year or two or whatever and Anytime that happened, he went back to running funeral homes. Um, He said people would recognize him occasionally. They'd come in and it would be a great icebreaker, which is part of the job of being a real undertaker like that, is making the people comfortable. And then they look up and there's Paul Bearer from TV. He's like, wait, you're really? And he's like, yes, come with me. By the way, I didn't realize that Paul Bearer was one in a tradition of wrestlers named after punk rockers. That there was, I was reading the Mark Lanigan autobiography, and there was a guy named Paul Bearer in the. I scene. mean, it's just a takeoff on the on the on the Paul Bearers, the guys that carry caskets. Right. Yeah, I would think he wasn't the first. I one would to think, think that was just. Yeah, but I would think that was just more of a coincidence. It's, uh, it's yeah. yeah, it's Paul Bearer. It's you Possibly. carry. That's the guy I that's heavily that doubt the that when so. Vince McMahon and Bruce Pritchard and Pat Patterson were coming up with these names, they were looking into their vast knowledge of punk rock bands. Probably not. But I mean, it was at the time when you had a sting and you had a Sid Vicious. This is true. So I will say I actually just realized this one thing, one impression I've never had of The Undertaker 
like one thing that does not in any way, shape, or form seem to be part of his character is that he has a job as an undertaker. Like to me, it's very—it's just a title. I, I there's no part of the Undertaker's character that makes me think, oh, he has a job. No, yeah, it's it's just yeah. a title. Well, you saw the um, you know, but he does have a workshop in which he makes caskets. He did at that point in his career, at least, as you see before the Yokozuna match, and he's building a special casket for Yokozuna. And that all struck that me stuff. as just something he does for himself. I don't, I didn't get a professional vibe off of that. Like, I I got that as just like, oh, that's where the Undertaker. <laughs> that's just in his house. Yeah. That's his basement. I mean, the thing was, everyone had a job. When they first brought out The Undertaker, he was more like he was an Undertaker. They dropped a lot of the elements like that pretty quickly. But what they would do, they would do things like he'd be backstage getting interviewed, and either him or Paul Bear would start measuring the body of the interviewer for the <laughs> casket just while he's trying to conduct the interview. Um, when he would have squash matches very early on, uh, when he, you know, he would do the tombstone pile driver and pin the guy. Then they'd bring out a body bag and wrap the guy in a body bag and carry them to the back. They dropped those pretty, uh, pretty yeah. quickly within the first couple of years for the reasons that you already said. I the Undertaker's character, it's like, it's specific enough that you have a picture in your mind just by hearing the phrase The Undertaker. But it's nebulous enough that it could be an undertaker or it could be death incarnate or a zombie or a wizard or whatever the undertaker needs to be at that point. When he first came out, he was another in a, in the long line of wrestlers who had other jobs. That was the theme of of the day. Like all the wrestlers had jobs. The big boss man was a cop. Doink was a clown. IRS was, you know, a tax guy. Accountant. No, not an accountant. Repo man. What took your stuff? Yeah. Rebo Man took your stuff. And, uh, one, and so I wanted to watch one of the body, the Undertaker had a series of body bag matches. One was with the Ultimate Warrior, which we were talking about doing for the premium, but I think I want to go with something else. And yeah, yeah, bear, we, we had the premium had list. We'll, we'll look I, it over. I, will th- I yeah. would like to do a Paul Bearer episode one day because I think he's my favorite non-wrestling wrestling character I've ever seen. Oh, Every- Paul Bearer is incredible. How he... How he kept that voice going the whole time, I'll never it, know. Every Undertaker moment, is here. Every moment the camera is on him is a moment I am filled with joy. Like I just, I yeah. just, I see Paul Bear and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna have a good time right now. I don't. It doesn't. He adds to every scene, no matter how stupid it is. Like even uh, we'll get to the beginning of the Undertaker versus Undertaker yeah. match, like. Paul Bearer makes that whole ridiculous oh, yeah. uh, circus. So that in, happens the, in this episode, we're looking specifically at some of the matches from earlier on in the Undertaker's career. We're not doing like super. Yeah. Er- well, we're going to do two episodes and two premium episodes on this. Even with that, we had to pare down the Undertaker's career very significantly in order to create some kind of context for what we're doing. And Ben and Katie put this together, um, which is uh, they've done a good job. These matches here. That we're doing today. Take a snapshot of about a year in the life of The Undertaker and what he represented after he really got over, but you know, before he was like one of the main, main guys. <sighs> and boy, these are some doozy of matches. <laughs> well, this was right at the time when Doc and I were pretty much first watching wrestling, like less than a year into our wrestling watch. We both started independently of each other mid 92 the first matches versus the 
the giant Gonzalez at WrestleMania nine in 1993. Which was the first WrestleMania that I watched as it happened that I paid, bought on pay-per-view and watched I, you too. Right. Doc. Um, I first bought WrestleMania 10 oh, okay. actually. I saw this one afterwards on videotape. Business was kind of down. They didn't want to try and do a more gigantic stadium than they'd ever done or something like that. But they didn't want to try and do like a small place because attendance was so down. So instead, they went with a gimmick place. They went with Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada. And it's very divisive. Some people think this was really stupid. They think it like it looked dumb. Other people think it was a really good act. And the whole show, they had they had like the, you know, the Caesar and Cleopatra were there. Bobby Heenan came out on like a camel sitting backwards <laughs> all, you know, uh, uh, Randy Savage was carried about by several people. Someone feeding him grapes. Supposedly off of Vestal Virgins. And I remember right. my mom watching with me like, I don't think they're virgins. I uh, I do want to note that, it, uh, Doc, you've told me this. This is JR's first yeah. major appearance. Yeah. Yes, he had just signed with the WWF after, you know, he had already done commentary for many years uh, in the territories and for WCW and right, so on. He wasn't on. new to wrestling, and, uh, I meant as far as the, the WWF no, no. If If you want the full story of that, I refer you to his excellent first book. His excellent second book is out now, but he talks about it a lot in his excellent first book. Um, and yeah, this was his first event. His style was very unlike what the WWF commentators at the time had. Um, and I thought the commentary was good on this match, but they definitely talk over each other a bit. Like JR definitely barrels through Bobby Heenan and uh, Randy Savage a couple of times when he should have like laid out a little, but that's just me nitpicking a little bit. No. Uh, Randy Savage on commentary is gold every time he says anything. Okay, two things. One, I'm actually really glad for the context of the fact that this took place at Caesar's palace because I was just like, Oh, it's they they did an ancient Rome WrestleMania one year, like <laughs> just apropos of nothing. Like, at, at the Royal um, Rumble, which, they had the actor that played Caesar come to the ring with full like fanfare to announce that the winner of the Royal Rumble would get a world championship match at Caesar's Palace at WrestleMania in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, okay. very schlocky, um, but very Vegas. Uh, and I will I will save this for when we get to the end of this match. But Randy Savage says something that is one of my favorite things I've ever heard a commentator say. Okay. So we'll, we'll 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 I'll save that. I for mean, the before end. that, going to the setting of things that that Doc very well laid out here, Undertaker's entrance with the fucking vulture is one of his coolest entrances oh, yeah. ever. And the coolest <laughs> imagery. Yeah. Too like like the we, the death imagery and the ancient Roman just right, Im yeah. imagery you, was like very dissonant. You but have made Undertaker sense. coming out in broad daylight, which should really work against his mystique, but they they made it work by just amping up that mystique with with the vulture. I was uh, just waiting for the vulture to just like take off, and then it's just like I don't think he's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> this, so the giant Gonzalez, um, he. He had been around oh, in WCW. Boy. He was El Gigante. Uh, um, you know, he was during this part of Undertaker's career. They were just coming up with a different monster to fight him month after month. It was Kamala. Then it was Giant Gonzalez. Eventually it was Yokozuna. Um, Giant Gonzalez debuts at the Royal Rumble, beating up Undertaker and eliminating him. And as a little kid, I was like, holy shit. Like, first of all, this guy is right? enormous. They, they sold him as eight feet tall. I think he was like seven, seven or something. 
And at that Royal Rumble, they kept showing wide shots of the ring to show how like almost comically larger he was than all of the people in the stands, all of the other wrestlers. And then finally, how much larger he was than The Undertaker. And he's dressed like if anyone has seen Attack on Titan, he looks like the Beast Titan, like the, the hairy one. I had um, that same thought. He's wearing yes. a full bodysuit, like a muscle print bodysuit, but also part of the... It has, it has butt, butt cheeks. <laughs> it also has, like, hair going along the sides of it. But it's not actual hair. It's all part of the print. <laughs> I'd like to make an observation about that. When he first comes out at the Royal Rumble, he's wearing a slightly different suit, which had large furry shoulders. Okay, I thought there was And a large furry... Yeah, there's a large furry band around his waist going down, covering like his whole crotch as though they were tights. At WrestleMania, it's as though he had trimmed all of that, so he just had a printed strip of hair on his crotch and on the shoulders. As the months went by, he had another suit or two with longer and longer hair, as though they cut it off and it was growing back. And very few people noticed this. I always huh. noticed it, and I thought it was a great touch, because he was only yeah. around about a year. And he had butt cheeks. Yes, he had butt cheeks. He has a he has butt cheeks imprinted onto the gear, like butt cheeks, just naked butt cheeks. And it's all I see the entire match. It's like I'm watching the match. I'm seeing everything that's happening, but just butt cheeks see, the, the whole time. I would love to see more novelty jumpsuits in wrestling. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put that out there. That would be a great way to attract more fans. Is more anatomically accurate novelty <laughs> jumpsuits like batman's nipples yeah, yeah. also more butts just uh, any anything that gets that can that's like uh um uh the yeah butts the butts are butts. great that's it that's that's my observation i thought i did i started that like i had a joke the I problem didn't. with giant gonzalez was that he was terrible <laughs> yes. He is not good. <laughs> He's he is not entertaining to watch. Wrestling promoters shit themselves when they saw him because he was so tall. He was a basketball player nationally for Argentina. Not exactly one of the basketball hotbeds in the world. So they thought, oh, no, he's a great athlete. No, he's not a great athlete. He's seven foot seven. He just had to put his arm up and he could defend anything. That's the, the match isn't as bad as I remember it being. Though. It's not I, good. No, though. it's not good. It's it's not the worst match I've ever seen, but I will say it he is in the running for the worst selling I've ever seen. He's like really every time like there is a there is a particular artificiality to his flailing. Yeah. That is just it's like somebody making fun of of a wrestler. Oh yeah, it's bogus. It's complete yeah. bogus. Especially when Undertaker doesn't actually make contact on some of those Chops. Oh my God! Like, uh, see, this is a testament to how good the Undertaker was at that point. They trusted him to tell the story that they wanted to tell and have, you know, matches that the crowd would at least accept as fine within the context of their stories. With Gonzalez and with a lot of guys like Gonzalez, I think it was actually a great story. Honestly, like the 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 cool unique thing about this match and about the undertaker is you have him going up against this giant and it's the undertaker who's no selling right at the beginning of the right. match the giant clobbers him and does no damage then undertaker starts fighting back and giant gonzalez sells and eventually he gets the advantage but for the whole match and even at the end even after he finds a way to take the undertaker down 
uh, he comes back and he's just so completely unstoppable, uh, indestructible. There was never a character like that, especially not a baby face. And I will say the undertaker is part of what is really cool about watching him wrestle is that he is a shockingly graceful man for, for somebody his size. And yet a lot of the times the matches he's in, it's still, you know, it still feels like, it still feels like I'm watching like the, you know, an eighties style match, like a hogo of just like big stompy punches and then like one or two throws. And like, once I'm not, not that I need it to be like a crazy high flying thing or anything like that, but there's time where it's just not very dynamic, uh, uh, this and, match which is, is all frustrating because punches. he is very dynamic. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's got in these early matches, he's got all of these great little uh, zombie mannerisms, like the way he stops and turns around and the sit up, of course, is the classic thing. Oh, yeah. uh, and, you know, it's it's way more gimmick back then than it would be later. But he does it all so well. It's just something that could be so completely stupid. You know, that character oh, it, could have just been a, an absolute failure if the guy playing it wasn't mm-hmm. so freaking good at it. Yeah. Th- can you imagine if they like if they just um, if they gave it to like Sid or something or Brian I, I Lee, love, the guy who's the Brian fake Lee, undertaker, yeah. you know, thankfully Sid was Sid, which is another entertaining uh, spectacle <laughs> in and of itself in a completely different yeah. way. Yeah. But like most people, if like handed this character would have failed. Um, the Undertaker took this. It's like, hey, you're kind of an undead wizard dead guy. Uh, don't sell anything. Because don't sell anything could be a death sentence in its in and of itself. But no, he took it. He ran with it. He made it work. When And he, he evolved it over the years. He's still trying to evolve it over the years. He's less successful now than he used to be, but he's still trying, man. So, well, that's what's really remarkable. I have to say something that I, I find really remarkable about, about his performance is that Characters in general, you know, we talk a lot about the difference between like comedy characters and wrestling characters on the podcast, partially because they're very related, partially because that's just, I don't know, something I can talk about with some level of knowledge slash possible authority. And I feel like, you know, the, the when a comedy character doesn't work, it is usually because it lacks specific, specificity. specificity. Thank you. Thank you for that. The word that Ben said. And it is. Is because because you know a lot of times people will I will not have the character game very well worked out or like they just they won't understand, you know like when you're writing a comedy sketch and you're getting notes on it a lot of the times you know th- what you have to dig deeper with is like why is this idea funny and you have to try to find the kernel of it so the fact that he really makes this work with a very general character with a character that just like well you're sort of death and you're sort of this and you're sort of a, you got a cool hat. Yeah, like it's not it's it's all of the shit that like it, it shouldn't work really. It should it should be too general and broad to really make sense and connect. But you're right. The, he embodies the physicality so perfectly and then contrasts it with like the you know, he's this huge dark imposing figure who then can move with greater agility than any of the other guys his size. It's really remarkable. So, I learned something as a child watching this which is what chloroform is. Because I didn't know that before. <laughs> and that's how oh, Giant Gonzalez is able to take down The Undertaker is by, uh, he has a towel drenched in chloroform, or at least that's what the announcers tell us it must be. 
he not, he knocks him unconscious with the chloroform, uh, gets disqualified because the ref sees him do it. And then they cart the Undertaker out, but he comes back. I love the image of Paul Bear trying to hold the Undertaker back and the Undertaker in the first time he ever defied Paul Bear at all, just moving his arm to move Paul Bear away like, no, no, we're not done here. <laughs> and then he gets in the ring, starts throwing clotheslines and finally causes Giant Gonzalez to do what I will generously describe as take one bump. And that popped the crowd. <laughs> That's, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the chloroform spot, this was so stupid. Not because the chloroform spot in itself is stupid. The chloroform spot works very well in small venues where you get something, you get chloroform and you dilute it or something that's ether in it, you know, and, and you make it so it won't actually knock someone out by diluting it or uh, just getting the smell on a piece of uh, cloth. And then you bring it in the ring and the heel hits the baby face with it. And everybody in the small venue, even if you can't quite see what's going on, you can smell the damn ether. So they're in an open air arena in Las Vegas. Nobody's smelling anything because that's the thing. You don't just say it's on the towel. You actually put something on right, the towel. Right. So the people, the people in the venue it helps. That's what it happens. And that's why then the announcers can be like, can you smell that? It's like those announcers couldn't smell anything. So I, they were outdoors. It's so stupid. I think this match is interesting uh, in order to show Evan a different kind of side of the business and how um, matches were presented in order to drive other kinds of business within the company. Because the point of this match was to make them both look strong, right? To make Undertaker look really strong, that he can fight that he can stand up to this kind of monster. In the end, he finally gets Giant Gonzalez off his feet, which takes him uh, until after he comes back after the chloroform. Uh, at the same time, Giant Gonzalez only got knocked off his feet, right? He didn't get pinned. He didn't get beaten decisively. And this drove the house show matches between the two of them for the next year. Because even if you didn't think Giant Gonzalez was any good, and I'm pretty sure even, even as a little kid, I realized he wasn't very good, I still wanted to see the fucking eight-foot giant live at the house show. And I went to the, the garden on this run of house shows in, like, June, um, and it wasn't awesome. just for that. I think there, there were a couple other things drawing me, but it was definitely exciting Brett, to see the fucking Brett, giant Brett. Well, yeah, Brett wrestled Rob Backlund. That was the same house show oh, yeah. where Shawn Michaels wrestled Razor Ramon when they were both still heels, uh, Lex Luger and Mr. Perfect, just a whole bunch of good stuff on that show. But I also got to see giant Gonzalez and they did the same kind of match where Gonzalez lost by DQ. Um, but they ran these house show matches up until August, up until SummerSlam, when Undertaker finally pinned Giant Gonzalez on TV. And did did you get a close look at his butt cheeks? I got a much closer look at Bam Bam Bigelow's butt cheeks, actually, because really? I was I because I was I was like six rows back from the front. Uh, my friend Will's dad uh, got us really good tickets, and we ran right up to the aisle whenever the wrestlers came out. And Bam Bam Bigelow and Tatanka fought in the aisle for a while. So we were up front and I reached out because I wanted to touch Bam Bam Bigelow's tattooed flaming head. But I got a whole handful of his ass instead. So uh, don't that's, uh, that's that, great, that's that Ben. Don't, don't do that, people. At the time, it was actually a lot more acceptable to try and reach over the guardrail. Don't yeah, do that. Like, uh, these days, it's like, don't, don't, don't do that. Because it, they get up. 
they get so upset. It's just like when you go to like a show on Broadway and you try to touch <laughs> the, the 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 actors, and then like, yes. and then security is like, "Sir, you need to leave." And I'm like, "I fucking paid five hundred dollars for this ticket." That's not. True. I've never have paid five hundred dollars <laughs> for a ticket. I just snuck in and tried to touch people. They're also, if you've ever touched a wrestler's arm or whatever, they're slimy as fuck. Oh, they're di- very gross. They're moist. This shit is gross. Moist. But yeah, chloroform is like it's like moist. it's like quicksand. Where I feel like I saw it in pop culture all the time growing up, and thought it would be around a lot more. And it's uh, I've never. It doesn't seem to exist. Um, before we move on to the next match, this match ends, um, and then Randy Savage says, "I'm not going to try to do the voice." Says, "Gonna have to change Giant Gonzalez's name to what happened." <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, gonna have to change when you first hear that Gonzalez's name to what happened, <laughs> and when you first hear that, it's like it's not necessarily like the funniest thing or the yeah. dumbest or any of that. But if you keep thinking about it, yeah. it will start deleting other information <laughs> from your brain because uh. it's just really it's like think of it like he's because he is confused as to what happened. He will now <laughs> have to change his very name to what happened because <laughs> that is the only way he could express how confused he is as to what happened here Look, today. Look, Randy Savage is a reincarnation <laughs> of Lao Tzu, so get over it. Nobody's here okay. to argue that. Uh, but, Nobody's here to say anything against that. Uh, also, before we move on, I want to say the real tragedy of Giant Gonzalez in the WWF is that like, he had been in WCW. Like, they knew he was bad. Yeah, they knew. They had no excuse. I wanted to... I mean, I... Yeah. I just want to point out one little thing. When Undertaker gets taken out before he comes back, the crowd, pretty much the whole fucking crowd, chants for Hogan. Right. Hogan had just come back, and he was in the house, and the look on Giant Gonzalez's face when he hears it is like, oh, yeah, here comes that Hogan money next. Right. right. And it's really interesting (laughs) considering what happens later that night at WrestleMania 9, which we'll tell Evan about on some future episode. That's a whole other story, completely unrelated, yes. So, Undertaker conquers another monster in Giant Gonzalez at SummerSlam. Yep. And the next big feud, he, he gets involved with Lex Luger, who's feuding with uh, Yokozuna at Survivor Series. And this leads to the casket match between Undertaker and Yokozuna at the Royal Rumble for the WWF title. And, you know... It's a giant casket. With the, the double wide, double deep casket that he makes specially for Yokozuna. That entire video package before this match is just incredible. With all the all Paul Bear is oh. amazing. Um the 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 Christmas themed one where instead of rest in peace, he Oh. He... <laughs> oh. Oh. It's somehow actually sinister and not just hilarious oh. and ridiculous. Honestly, the, the Undertaker as Santa Claus feels like a very unexplored uh, theme that could they could have fucking gotten a lot out of that because it's a brilliant concept. Like um, could have been the greatest Christmas episode. How ever. straight-faced he always kept everything is what made it work. Like right. there are legendary stories of people trying to get the Undertaker to crack in the ring, and like almost nobody ever succeeded at all because why would you succeed? <laughs> In the video package, they're, I mean, they're like they're go- jumping around doing a bunch of clips. There's a guy with a tennis racket, Jim Cornette. 
Yeah, that's oh, that that's okay. Jim Cornette. At the time, he was oh, okay. very much active as a manager. The WWF brought him in to do promos because they wanted Yokozuna, and they wanted Yokozuna to be managed by Mr. Fuji. But Mr. Fuji always did promos in like broken English. They wanted a real professional promo guy for their champion Yokozuna, so they brought in Jim Cornette and called him their their American spokesperson. Um, so he would cut his you know just just mile a minute dynamite promos that were world title class. And uh, yeah, that's Jim Cornette for you. Yeah, and so it, it created this whole dog and pony show for Yokozuna. You know, he didn't just have one manager. He had, he had a manager and a hype man. And then 10 dudes <laughs> to do his bidding, as <laughs> we found out later in this match. Um, I, I just want to say, Yokozuna's acting in this whole thing is fantastic. It's Dude. incredible. His faces, his, like, Looney Tunes-esque facial reactions... Him taking three also- full steps back and then falling on his bottom is just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and he could he could, slipped on his he slipped on some butterscotch. Could, right. <laughs> he could still really move at this point too. You see him just yeah. like very really nimble cool. at, at various points. It's really cool to watch a match between two guys who do not look like they will be graceful at all and then are like yeah, shockingly graceful and and fluid in um in there. Yeah, Yokozuna can can really move around. Before Yokozuna's weight got completely out of control. And believe it or not, this is before Yokozuna's weight got completely out of control. His agility was incredible. The early Yokozuna squash matches, which we watched a couple of, I believe, much earlier in in this podcast. Uh he could he had the balance of, well, he had the balance of a sumo wrestler because if you don't know, the object of sumo is to get any part of your opponent's body other than their feet to touch the ground. So the main defense in sumo is simply not falling over. That's why sumo wrestlers train so hard to have such low centers of gravity. Um, And Yoko could bend so far backwards that the tip of that long ponytail he has could brush the mat and then lean back forwards doing his I'm almost going to topple teeter-totter routine, which he did better than anybody else has ever done in the history of wrestling. And then when he finally would bump it had the gravity of somebody taking down a killer whale or something and once yokozuna's on his back he's vulnerable it's the only time he's vulnerable and like this is yoko in his peak too before he got you know too big yes he he eventually gained another i want to say 300 pounds and it was not good i'll i don't want i don't necessarily want to cover it on the podcast i'll show you i'll show you a clip of him at his largest he just couldn't get it under control and like this isn't a question of like oh i gained a little weight body shaming like he was a great athlete at four or five hundred pounds he was an incredible athlete at four hundred five he was very addicted to food yeah, at 800 yes. pounds, it was too late. Um, he was in the process of losing weight when he died, but, you know, he yo-yoed back and forth, hundreds of pounds in either direction, and it was just too much. It was just too much. But, yeah, his mannerisms were great because they sold The Undertaker so well. Like, the my fa- one of my favorite parts is when he slams Undertaker's head into the steps, and Undertaker just does the hair <laughs> yeah. flip and turns at him, and fucking Yoko looks like he shits himself. Yeah. It's fantastic. The whole story of Yokozuna up until this point is nobody could get one up on him physically. Lex Luger could knock him out because he had a surgically implanted steel plate in his forearm from when he was in a motorcycle accident. And the same was true. But Yoko was intimidated by The Undertaker. He was actually scared of The Undertaker. And that's what made the match work so well. That they both sold that so well, regardless of any moves that they did. 
And that's really a big part of the art of pro wrestling at the time. If you're wrestling six times a week, you can't do those moves. You will die. But if you could do this every night, the people will be happy. And it really is a performance. Like, yeah, like you said, like there don't like I didn't even notice really that it wasn't that active of a match between the two of them just because it's like, yeah, they're they're selling really well. They're just it's there's a there's a lot of chemistry. So I pointed this out to Doc as we were watching the matches because we watched we watched Gonzalez first and then Yoko second. Like Gonzalez is terrible at doing almost nothing. Yoko is the king of doing almost nothing. (laughs) And it's they're both yeah. not doing many moves at all, but Yoko's doing it really well, and Gonzalez is doing it terrible. That's why I'm saying the stuff about Yokozuna, it's not like, oh, he was fat. It's like, no, no, there's no problem with being fat. If you're going to be fat, be fat. Yokozuna was addicted to eating, and he gained another several hundred pounds yeah. until he died. And that's, that is a thing that can happen, and like... And it happened to Yoko. I was actually there's listening a- to Cornette talk about it. They sent him to, like, rehab to, like, they and did, yeah. He, just, he, he repeatedly he faked his way through it, and they kept trying to put him. And you, uh, Doc, told me this story. They kept trying to put him and another guy on diets, Vader. and they just sneak out and eat oh, together. Vader. Yeah, they sent him and Vader together mm-hmm. to like to try and uh, develop better eating habits, and they would sneak out in the middle of the night and go to Burger King and order several value meals each. And yeah, it's an addiction. It really is, man. I, you know, I've done a fair amount of drugs in my life and had various issues and stuff. And like my relationship with food has been harder to, to deal with than pretty much anything else. Like in, in that regard, yeah, you know, because Yo, motherfucking Charlie sent us a five pound bag of Sour Patch Kids. Oh, God. He might as oh, well man. have tried to kill me. Yeah. Oh, like, Jesus. <laughs> I, oh. I can't not eat the Sour Patch Kids. Oh, yeah, totally. yeah you're, you're a big candy guy. You oh, know? no, I'm way more addicted to that than I have been to anything else. For me, it's uh, it's fucking, it's white flour. Like, that's mm-hmm. like anything that's mm-hmm. like like baked goods, pasta, pe- like anything Pizza. that's like bready, mm-hmm. that like anything that you eat a bunch of and then feel really awful because it's expanding, but then that awfulness obliv- like destroys your consciousness briefly, so you like get to forget about like the human... The, the, the suffering that is existence for a little while yeah some uh sometimes evan just wakes up in the middle of the night and grabs a measuring cup and an open bag of flour and just goes to town he, he gives the middle finger to the sign on the side of the bag of flour that says flour is raw do not eat i asked you guys to not share that but um here I'm we sorry. are and then <laughs> look evan this is actually an intervention we're going to need you to sit down and listen to us for a minute. Hey, Evan, you remember recently we went to that Italian restaurant with our friends and they were getting various stuff and we were sitting next to each other and we both looked at the menu and it was like, oh, the big bowl of pasta. Just bring me the big bowl of pasta. And they brought us each the big bowl of pasta. And it was great. Oh, it was so good. It was uh, it was so good. Well, because yeah. also I, I... So good. Well, I mean, I mean that's Evan, that's just because they wouldn't let you order the bowl of raw flour. Let's be real. Here. I mean, they did after I killed the waiter. You tried. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Look, it's Speaking an addiction. He's, with, Hob- uh, he's, he's with Hobarth now. Um, Speaking why- of annihilating your consciousness. Yes. So one of the most overused <laughs> words in, in pop culture today is the word epic, right? I try not to use it a whole lot. It's very, over- it's very overused. But I got this Undertaker shit is truly epic in a way really that I I yeah. don't think I've ever like I don't know if the WWE ever managed to hit these heights again but like they the, haven't they, the, the under like yeah the end there of were, this match and the beginning of the next one 
Whole, I, I, it, I would, it would have destroyed my brain when I was ten. If I had seen this shit when I was ten, this podcast yeah. wouldn't exist because I would have been a wrestling fan. Now, I think now you kind right? of understand. <laughs> yeah, like. So people, all these guys at the end of this match start coming in. They'll come all come in at once, a couple at a time. More and more guys come in and attack I have the, the full Undertaker. List. Okay, give it, give it, give us them in order as they came. I called them the Gallery of Forgotten Chumps. Who's now Evil Crush. Yes, the gallery. Well, some Do of not say chumps in regards to Bam Bam. Or yeah. fucking Tenru. They have Kabuki yeah, get and Tenru. Diesel, thank you very Diesel, much, Bam Bam is Bam out there. Adam Bomb, like A-D-A-M Bomb. B- both members of Chronic, the future tag team Chronic. Yes. Jeff Jarrett <laughs> and the Head Shrinkers, Samu and Fatu. Fatu, who would one day be Rikishi. Yeah, years later. Right, so they all attack The Undertaker. It's like five of them attack The Undertaker, and Taker beats them all out away, and another five come in, and finally all of them together. But none of it matters until they get the urn away from Paul Bear. Once they get the urn right. away from Paul Bear and, and open it, and a, it. a bunch of green smoke comes out, The Undertaker's power fades away, and the beating is finally effective. But still, they open the casket and let Yokozuna just kick the Undertaker into the casket and they close it. And Bam Bam gets right up on top of it. <laughs> yeah, Gotta love Bam Bam. And then, so Yoko has won. He's defeated the Undertaker in a casket match. Who thought that was even possible? <laughs> I mean, going into this match, you gotta understand from the, the little kid fan point of view, it, it, sometimes they, they use the phrase the immovable object against the irresistible force. It really felt like that in this case. Like, who could possibly win this match? How could Taker possibly beat Yokozuna? How could Yokozuna possibly beat Taker? And we got an answer to that. He had to hire 10 guys <laughs> to beat him down, get the urn, spill the urn, and then they were able to put him in the casket. And then it was like, fuck, because the only other casket match we had seen before this was against Kamala. And when he put Kamala in the casket, Kamala was gone. I mean, he came back eventually, I think, as a baby face. Yeah, yeah, he came back. But, he came back pretty quickly, but he was gone for a while. It's like, what happens when the Undertaker gets put in a casket? And we got an answer to that, too. As they <laughs> roll the casket out to the, the aisle, and then up on the screen, we get some crazy fucking shit. We get an image of the Undertaker in the casket, and this amazingly overwrought piece of dialogue that comes out of him. Which I like, uh, I, I couldn't believe that this, I was hearing this, which, and like, once again, everything he says, like, it doesn't mean anything. It just sounded really cool. But I was like, the spirit of the undertaker is in all mankind. As he ascends into the heavens or but some I was like, shit. This is fucking ostensibly children's entertainment. Like, holy shit. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, this is what Bray Wyatt is trying to do a lot of the time. And, and, yes. I, and I love Bray Wyatt. And I think at time, when Bray Wyatt is great, he's brilliant. But he ain't the Undertaker. So he's like, I will not rest in peace. And as Katie was saying, there's like some lightning flashes on the screen. And then just a silhouette of his body that rises up. And as it rises up past the top of the screen, the undertaker rises above the screen. (laughs) And we can only assume that he's uh, ascending into heaven like Jesus. Yes. Yes. yes, Right. And he, he really is the fucking (laughs) Jesus of the WWF. Well, we, the the last match is we watch his resurrection. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but yeah, very much so. 
Um, I will. I will say just on the note about uh, Bray Wyatt. From from what I have seen yeah. of Bray Wyatt, comparing him to the Undertaker, yeah. like I feel like Bray Wyatt is a gifted comedic actor who is also a wrestler and like can sort of inhabit those characters and like and but sort of approaches it maybe more with an acting sort of idea or attitude. Uh, mm -hmm. And whereas the Undertaker, like I don't think he could. I mean, who knows if he could really do anything else or embody any other character like this. But I think I feel like he just is the Undertaker. Like, he just is this guy. Yeah. The, the furthest he comes from that is in the, you know, the turn of the uh, 2000s when he becomes Biker the Undertaker. And that's because everybody had more realistic gimmicks. And he's like, well, what if I wasn't an undead zombie wizard? Then I'd be kind of a, a rock and roll biker gang member. And it worked. Because that's who he was, too. And then, when it came time to have character again, he put the dead man back into it, and it was fine. He knew what he was doing. That's what I mean by he keeps evolving. Speaking so of rock and roll biker characters, Mr. Brian Lee, who would later become Chains. Yes. Oh, hold on. Before we get to Brian Lee, one more thing about this match with Yokozuna that really pissed me off when I was a kid. I was not yet buying the WWF pay-per-views. I started doing that with WrestleMania 10, and I didn't look back. I would save up my allowance and all that. It was fine. You know, my parents gave me food. Otherwise, it's not like I needed the money. Um, so the next weekend, I would, I would get accustomed to getting the results on WWF superstars like the exact results, because they'd give the results. You'd find out what happened if you didn't watch the pay-per-view. You couldn't go online. I mean, technically you could, but it was 1994. I wasn't online. And they didn't have a full episode of Superstars. They had, uh, they had Todd Pettengill, who was hosting Superstars, show a few matches, show a few clips, show a few things that happened previously, but he would not say what happened at the Royal Rumble. He kept saying the the... Uh, the replay is available for pay-per-view on Tuesday or Wednesday, one of the days in the middle of the week back when they had to schedule that. But he kept teasing that the finish of the title match was insane and he couldn't tell you what it was. And he didn't. He didn't say what the end of the title match was. He didn't say what the finish of the Royal Rumble was other than that it was crazy unique, which it was. And I've left that weekend like I still don't know what happened at the pay-per-view. And they told me the next week. They used to do that. I was Ugh. watching primetime wrestling from 1987, right. and they wouldn't tell you the end of the Hogan-Andre match for like several weeks after right. it aired. Yeah. I mean, I guess that was probably a pretty effective technique to get most people yes. to do that. But then, yes, if you were in a position where you could not get the pay-per-view, it, it would just haunt you. That's it. I, I didn't I didn't have the cable television. Yeah. And one of my mom's friends got wind of it and was like, well, if you pay the pay-per-view fees, you can come over and watch watch the show. And I'm like, OK, I used to go to my every couple of months. Yeah, I used to go to my yeah. grandma's place, which was only a couple blocks away. That's where I would order them. Yeah, cool. Um, I think that also has a lot to do with me stopping watching wrestling in the Attitude Era. Mm. Um, is that like I didn't want to bother going to someone's house on Monday night because I was out, you know, with Evan and other people doing drugs. Good times. <laughs> Good times. Uh, yeah. Eat, eating yeah. flour. No, well, no, that's now I had to replace the drugs with food. Yeah. That's how aging works. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah. So, when I, yeah. When I was younger and like, I don't know, a hundred, almost a hundred pounds lighter than I am now. Uh, that was all just, that was all just drugs. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, True story. Yeah. But Not a, <laughs> 50 pounds later. Um, cigarettes. Cigarettes were a big. Problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was uh, I was a buck 80 when I quit. And I'm 230 now. But also, I don't so, smoke anymore, yeah. so it's worth it. But 
Also, you will eat lots of flour yeah, now. So by the spoon. with some butter on it. Not, so, not an animal. He doesn't eat it with a spoon. He, he he literally digs the one cup measuring cup in and <laughs> pours it into his mouth. Uh, uh, I get well. No, he just said with some butter. Um, yeah, he's he sprays so, butter on it. Leslie Nielsen. So, in, so wait, wait, hold okay. on before we get to Leslie Nielsen. So in 1994, <laughs> Leslie Nielsen. So, uh, okay, so no. in 1994, at the the Undertaker gets put in the casket and actually disappears. They really never do long term angles like this anymore, where the guy's actually gone. I think he was getting married and maybe like having his his wife was having their first kid or something like that. Uh, he he got yeah, he was getting married and he needed some time off, so they time. gave it to him. He missed WrestleMania that year. So yeah, he missed. I mean, you know, for for all the wrestlers who complain that they never get time off, I mean, the Undertaker, who was one of their main commodities, they found a way to give him time off. So I don't know if. Yeah, there's no, a lot of contradictory right stuff. Way. Here's the thing, you know, there are a lot of guys who say, especially in the 80s and the 90s, if I asked for any time off, I'd get fired. But there are also a bunch of guys that went, I asked for time off and they just gave me some time off and then I came back and things were fine. And the, the first group, it's like, well, did you ever ask? And they're like, no. And then the second group is like, no, no, you gotta ask. It's like, like Vince respects somebody who treats themselves like superstars. If you treat yourself like a nobody, he'll treat you like a nobody. And he probably doesn't want you on his show in the first place. When CM Punk was asking for time off, they were already like into WrestleMania season too. It was, so I right. think like the timing might make a lot of a di- of the difference. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, but in this case, The Undertaker missed Royal Rumble through SummerSlam. And so all... he was at the Rumble and SummerSlam, but he missed WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. And the whole WrestleMania build, WrestleMania 10, he missed WrestleMania 10 right. at the Garden. So all summer long, we didn't hear anything from him for months, from like uh, January until June or something like that. And then all summer long, beginning at the, at the beginning of the summer, the million-dollar man Teddy Biasi started to say that he had contacted the undertaker and he was going to bring the undertaker back. And so it was like, Oh, did undertaker sell out? Cause they kept doing these stories with Teddy Biasi where baby faces would sell out to the million dollar man and join his corporation. So, um, and eventually on Shawn Michaels heartbreak hotel interview show, uh, which was great. One of my favorite, one of their little interview segment things. They really don't put in the time and energy that they used to. They used to make a whole set for like the barber shop or the Heartbreak Hotel or whatever. Nowadays, it's just like something on the fucking Titantron in the ring. Or in the ring. Yeah. Anyway, so he brings out what looks the fucking like The Undertaker. Which... It's a pretty good imitation. Can you yes. see Ted, Ted DiBiase standing there in the ring next to the heart-shaped bed, all the neon lights being like, come on up here, Undertaker, really makes it seem like he's about to fuck the Undertaker in front of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> like... Yes. It's, it's, it's a bit pornographic. Uh, yes. Um, uh, the, the, the Heartbreak Hotel <laughs> is a very close simulacrum to the rooms in the red light district in Amsterdam, for sure. Don't um, ask me uh, why I know that. Complete complete with the seven-foot-tall guy standing in the background massaging his fists in case something goes wrong. Exactly. In, in, I mean, in, you don't see them. They're in, like, the back room. Right, they're in the back. In this video package that leads up to this, too, there's, like, this brief supercut 
of like just normal people in the world being like, did you see that guy? Who was that? Oh no, that was the undertaker. Right. And I was like, this is the least realistic thing I've ever seen in the WWE. These <laughs> the little girl yeah. who's like, where did you see the undertaker? I saw him on the slide outside. He was love going that. to, I loved, she was my favorite one. They, she was my favorite one. It was great. I was just like, normos are not fucking talking about the undertaker like this. It's between her and the ladies, like, in what was it, like, an antique store yeah, or, like, a, shop or something, something that, and one of them was like, he sure was big, and the other one just dodged him out, and he was like, oh, yeah, that was The Undertaker. That, that was what made me be like, this is a wrestling fantasy right here. Yeah. This is more than they anything would... else. This is, a, that, uh, it all, every part of that segment of just the, the normal people they got in there was fantastic. It, they dripped <laughs> these things out on their weekly television for a long time. They were very judicious about it, letting most of it stew in the fans minds and that should have been out. even more out there they should have done more of them oh my god they could have done so many but to, to... They, they could have done one where it's like in a bar and it's like oh yeah i picked up the undertaker last night and took him back to the cd <laughs> hotel and he gave me a dicking <laughs> a dicking you say <laughs> <laughs> so eventually this place they the decided... heartbreak hotel i don't know if you've heard of it no <laughs> Eventually, they decided uh, that, you know, Jack Tunney, the president of the WWF, decided they had to get the bottom to this. So they contracted famed detective Leslie Nielsen to find oh, The Undertaker. Beautiful. Now, they didn't show on SummerSlam that after the uh, the vignettes of people saying, I saw The Undertaker, they filmed a series of short, like, police squad pun style vignettes that they would then show every week of Leslie Nielsen trying to get clues to find <laughs> The Undertaker. Uh, just real quick, for our li any of our listeners born after... 1990, I'm going to say-ish, yeah, something like that. Uh, Leslie Nielsen was arguably the most popular com comic actor in America in the early 90s, partially because he, and this is sort of touches on a theme we've talked about before, he was actually a great dramatic actor who then they cast him in these series of movies called The Naked Gun, uh, would, where, uh, oh, and he was where in the show called The Police Where he was already like 70. He was already 70, and he <laughs> just basically, it's, they're like the silliest movie. It's like silly in a way that like they don't make anything like that anymore, probably because it's, you know, got kind of old after a while. But, um, but, and then he just delivers all the lines with just like very straight faced, very grave in a way that when I was a child was absolutely hilarious. Uh, those movies co-star O.J. Simpson, which is complex now <laughs> looking back, but... The, the I original, don't know the other guys so well, the, George Kennedy. Uh, I just want to say the original Police Squad television series, which only had like four or six episodes or something. Yeah, it's not a lot. Um, it's like joke for joke, one of the funniest things anybody has ever made. And it's because they do this stuff that is so silly and stupid with such straight faces that it works because the people on the show are good enough actors to do it. Much in the way, only the, the Undertaker only works because they do it with a straight enough face that it works. And even though it's like silly and a lot of very groan inducing sort of humor, I have to say like Americans, American humor is one thing we're not great at is silliness. Like, or like we, it's hard for us to be silly and not be either stupid or overly crass, yeah. I think. And those, once again, I have not seen these movies in 20 years, so it's possible that I would watch them and be like, oh, wow, these are garbage. But I'm pretty sure that they must be ageless in some way because like the also one. like the bits it was all gags and wordplay like it wasn't like based on anything i don't know i actually now kind of want to go back and rewatch some of them I should. and just his reactions to things like the bit yes. they do at the very end where they find the briefcase and george kennedy's like uh... the case is closed and then and like the whole it's like oh this is stupid but then when leslie nielsen turns to the camera and is like 
the case is closed. It's hilarious. He doesn't like, he doesn't even say it like that. He doesn't say it like he's incredulous. He says it very matter of fact, as though they finally solved the mystery. The case is closed. Like this is good enough for him. Yeah. I like the shot backstage of them going in different directions where it says Undertaker Trail. And the arrow's pointing both ways. Yeah. <laughs> right. Stuff like that. I, I exactly. missed if that got brought up. If it did, no, I'm no, no, sorry. No, but didn't. that was a great it was a great visual. Oh man. So super sleuths aside, um Paul Bearer, you know, he's denying that the million dollar man's undertaker is the undertaker. Well, first, uh there's one confrontation where Bearer holds up the urn. And DiBiase's Undertaker starts to move towards it, but then under t- but then DiBiase pulls out a wad of cash, and he and, and more uh, money goes towards him instead. I loved how it was like two Undertakers, one fueled by cash, the other fueled by death. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and you know they say death and taxes are the uh, ah, two certainties in life. Right? So, um. But but at this point they sell it like Paul Bear is like oh well if he chose the money over the urn it must not be the real Undertaker I'm gonna go find the real Undertaker so we get to SummerSlam we get this entrance so the guy who played the fake Undertaker was Brian Lee who was actually Mark Calloway the real Undertaker's best man at his wedding oh wow yeah, yeah so I guess they spent you know they were good friends they spent a lot of time together because Brian Lee you know at least for the basics. I thought did a really good job at getting Undertaker's mannerisms down to the point where looking at him just coming out on his own, you're like, oh, you know, he kind of looks like the Undertaker. And his theme song is like the Undertaker's theme song at 70% coolness. Right, right. Well, it was the old Undertaker theme song. Oh, and then okay. When he comes back, he debuts with the new remix. That makes that makes more um, sense. And was he a wrestler purple... in other way? Like, I mean, had he, he been in other stuff, Brian Lee? Brian Lee on the indies. Um, eventually, he got a regular role in WWF as the biker chains of the Disciples of Apocalypse faction. But so I, I just wanted to say, like, so we get his entrance. Then Paul Bearer comes out with the casket and the extra big urn that has a flashlight in it for some reason. Um, and then we get the Undertaker returning in the purple with the new music and instead of raising the lights slowly with his hands, he just sticks them out to the side really quickly and the lights come on. My main point here is that Brian Lee looks like he's doing a pretty good job of being the Undertaker until he's standing next to the real Undertaker. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, no, actually, he's nothing like the Undertaker at all. So I want to ask Evan, like, as someone who's not as familiar with all of this as us, was it obvious to you once they stood in the ring and f- were face to face which one the real one was? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, they. I thought that they did a really, really good job of making them look the same. And they even, like, they have similar builds, nigh-identical butts. But they, <laughs> like... But yeah, you can you just immediately tell. I mean, like they like the bone. Their bone structure is slightly different. Like even even hiding their face. Um, I also just kind of assumed that the first one was not going <laughs> right. to be the real Undertaker. And Undertaker's that, uh, also a few inches taller. If if yeah. I were a kid and weren't like so into the detail of their appearances, and even I was just a kid watching the first Undertaker, under Faker as he gets called now, uh, is the term that gets you uh, used for him. Undertaker, uh, fake Undertaker comes out, walks out of his own accord, and then the second Undertaker 
comes out via mythical urn resurrection with the full casket entrance. I mean, that's the giveaway right there. The casket yeah. opens oh, yeah. and he's not in it, but the new like double wide, double deep urn is. I wonder, I wanted to, to see that part of the board meeting where someone, probably Vince was like, probably well, Vince, we, yes. we, we, we need a bigger urn. <laughs> like a really, a really big urn. So, so uh, all this spectacle and then there's the match. The match, you know, again, Brian Lee tries really hard to be the Undertaker, but he's just not the fucking well, Undertaker. It, there was one there was one feat in the match that I was very impressed by, which is there um it's fairly early on. They're doing the like I guess like the run of Irish whips or whatever you call it when like, you know, one you run one guy hits yeah. the ropes and then runs back and then they either like go under or go over. And uh, the Undertaker like leaps over Brian Lee at one point, which at first I was like, "Oh, I've seen that before." And then I was like, "Damn, these guys are both like six ten! Like <laughs> yeah. Jesus! Like he just did a straight up like six foot vertical leap over this dude!" Like, it was, yep. Um, but yeah, I other than the, that, the match was not very interesting. I thought the best part was when they took off their hats simultaneously. Yes, oh, that was perfect. They nailed that perfectly. <laughs> fucking choreographed. Like, I loved it. Brian Lee did an excellent job playing the Undertaker. I think that's the best way to properly put it. Right. The problem with this match wasn't that he was doing poorly or that the Undertaker was doing poorly. The whole conceit of the match is that both of these guys are a very like slow methodical character and neither of them sell anything and it, it the undertaker works as a character in the ring well because it can contrast with anything else it's not contrasting yeah. with itself andre the giant was one of the biggest draws of all time in wrestling people would come from far and wide to pack arenas to see andre the giant i wouldn't want to see andre the giant versus another andre the giant because it takes oh absolutely not no it, yeah. and especially not versus giant gonzalez and especially not versus <laughs> giant gonzalez right it takes what's special about andre and completely negates it because now he doesn't have neither of them would have a size advantage neither of them would be able to do their moves where they demonstrate their weight advantage it's just they'll plot into each other and that's kind of what happened here there was so much circus surrounding this angle which was way it's, over that uh, the match kind of sucked it, it it's just so it's just so slow and plotting within five minutes i'm just like okay they're not doing anything um the finish was the finish was great though. yeah yes. that was the first time i'd ever seen the tombstone reversal and they did it absolutely perfectly oh him sticking his arms out to the side first and then getting up. And then the, the idea that the Undertaker's like, no, he needs three tombstones <laughs> before I'm going to put him down. And, and it was really impressive to... Um, oh, hold on, wait, let me wait for these sirens to stop. It was really impressive to how, like, they start wrestling, and I was like, God, it's got to be really hard to wrestle with your hair in your face like that. And they keep their hair in the face for the whole match, and it... The un you only get a clear shot of the Undertaker's face at the very end when he pins him and flips his hair up and looks directly into the camera with the whites of his eyes. And I was like, that that's fucking theater right there. That's amazing. The problem is, is that the match, like, not only is the match not good, but following that intro, like, it, unless they pulled off an absolute masterpiece, there's no fucking way. There's no way it would have lived up to it because that is, that, that is the best intro introduction to a match i've ever seen i like uh, hands down vince saying like the crowd is in like a stunned silence it's like no they're bored you know what happened right before <laughs> this match yeah it's true though no it is totally so no they're bored the crowd just goes like 
They are asleep. Directly before this match, this is the last match on the show, directly before this match was Bret Hart versus Owen Hart in a steel cage match that went half an hour, had a lot of great drama for the World Wrestling Federation Championship, and then after seeing that classic, they spent 15 minutes watching a bunch of guys take the cage down. And then... And then they watched this yeah. whole thing. Uh, I, I wanted to say this is a really a real testament to how over the undertaker was and how, despite not really being in the title picture, he was, uh, you know, showcased as one of their top stars. This pay-per-view SummerSlam 94 and the next pay-per-view where undertaker finally gets his revenge against Yokozuna. Those two matches were the main events over Bret Hart's title matches at both of these two pay-per-views. And they didn't do that very often at that time. By the way, that second Undertaker-Yokozuna casket match from Survivor Series also features Chuck Norris. And I wasn't going to make you watch two Undertaker-Yokozuna casket matches, but... No, one was uh, enough, thank you. One was enough, but it might be worth checking. I mean, you know, you do get to see Chuck Norris kick Jeff Jarrett. The, The idea is he's an outside of the ring enforcer to stop Yoko's goons from coming in. Uh, it was goons, hired goons. It was a big cross promotion with the USA Network that was showing Walker, Texas Ranger, right, uh, right before Raw. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. Um, so there, you, there so, you have it. The beginning of uh, of all of that with the Undertaker, uh, the Undertaker's legend rising. Um, <laughs> once he, yeah. this is all kind of tells a story. Like he finally does vanquish Yokozuna at Survivor Series, and he has to move on to other things. Um, and they eventually do start putting him in, you know, higher profile. I know it's a world title match, how much higher profile, but actual higher profile things within the next couple of years. Kind. I mean, he, he keeps getting derailed. Like he gets derailed by Mabel and then by um, after Mabel, it's the, the whole million dollar corporation. First, he has to fight off the million dollar corporation up until WrestleMania 11. And then he gets derailed by Mabel. Um, and all these people, they just keep him away from the title picture. And it's not until WrestleMania 13, really, where he finally gets uh, gets that world title. He, he had it once before, uh, really, really early in his run as the A year in. And, it was at Survivor yeah, w- Series the year after he debuted. He beats Hulk Hogan. Well, it, uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say, we're going to show you. Yeah, well, you just uh, said he won the title. I'm presuming he's not going to yeah. win the title in a match where he loses to Hulk Hogan. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so, um, but that was, that was early. But, but, but they took that off of him immediately. Yeah. He only had it for like three days. I think I gotta say here is, here's my meta problem with the undertaker so far Um, out of this is both with these three matches. And I I think we've watched maybe three or four other undertaker matches over the course of, this podcast something like that um is that like so the character is amazing when the matches are good they're great um but like today like two of these matches sucked like at the end of the day like i uh, you know putting aside me trying to have an open mind and trying to not be too negative or anything like that like i you know i mean two of the matches in here the wrestling was just like fucking nothing to look at even if he's technically good if the match sucks i'm like why am i fucking doing this but that was what was so amazing about his character is his matches all sucked for years. <laughs> yeah. Like he doesn't really yeah. have great matches until much later. Like we'll, we'll show you. Oh, there's some amazing matches, matches coming up. Great. 
But up until then, like I mean, I actually really liked the match with the Yokozuna. Well, no, that oh, the was, was match. good. The other two were trash. But I, I but thought otherwise, that was a good match. they put him up against these talentless freak shows month after month, and he was just so awesome that we didn't care that his matches sucked. It just really didn't matter. It wasn't the slot on the show for the really good match. We had Bret Hart as champion. He was going to have a 25-minute wrestling classic, and then elsewhere on the show, The Undertaker would fight the monster of the month or whatever in the you know three-ring circus, as you put it, freak show match. Um, But he could do better. And that brings us back to how anybody else in his position would have failed pretty promptly. Yes. But he could do it. There's a quote Bret Hart said once that Undertaker came up to him when they did a European tour and they were matched against each other, I believe both as baby faces. And he said that Taker would come up to him really excited and said, I'm really excited for a match tonight. I'm finally going to be able to show them that I'm better than what I've been doing. And uh, and he did. (laughs) And we're going to watch one of those matches with Bret for the premium. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And you're right that it is a testament to the power of his character that like the two trash matches that we watched today, if it had been like, if it had been Diesel, right, and there hadn't been all of the character stuff and all the cool fanfare, I would have shut the matches off and lied to you guys about finishing them. <laughs> but because of the power of the Undertaker, I just say I was just like, oh, these matches aren't very good, and just still kind of sailed through them to the end because ba- based on his charisma, it's like when there's an actor that you really love in a sh- in a movie that sucks, and you're just like, oh, but you know. But the, 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 he, you know, yeah. this guy's here, so it's all. I'm gonna feel. I'm gonna feel good and comforted, no matter what. Uh, the Undertaker does have a match with Diesel at WrestleMania 12, shortly before Diesel leaves the company. I was thinking about this, and I was going over his WrestleMania opponents because they made a, such a big deal eventually of his unbeaten streak. It was years before the Undertaker faced anybody at WrestleMania that was still in the company the next year. The first person he faced at WrestleMania that was in the company the next year is at WrestleMania 14 when he faced Kane. Yeah. Wow. wow. No. Yeah, that is a long time. Snuka was out. Roberts was out. Gonzalez was out. He skipped WrestleMania 10. King Kong Bundy was out. Diesel was out. Sid was out. Kane. Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, final thoughts. Be good. We got pretty yeah. much all of it. I think so. I think we're good. This was the Undertaker that you know Doc and I grew up loving, and uh, all of his success later on is rooted in how well he established that character during these early years. Agreed. I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to doing the other ones. I, um, yeah, I mean, this guy, and then you'll see how he had all this longevity because he was able to evolve that character over the years. And that's what we're going to see. It it does almost feel like he's cheating sometimes. Just like the character is so cool. Just like the fact it's like, Oh, you get to be death. Okay. All right. (laughs) Like, I guess well, uh, I guess I guess I'll be the IRS guy, but you can be <laughs> death. <laughs> like. One funny anecdote about that: he, you know, um, he talked about this on the Broken Skull sessions with Steve Austin, where he was like, for the weeks leading up to his debut, they kept showing this big egg on TV, which ended up being the gobbledygooker, which was this like turkey themed mask. Yeah, it's like a, a that, guy in a big old turkey suit. It was, it was re- funny for really about a stupid. week. It was not very good. Yeah. But so he's seeing this big egg on TV and he knows he's coming in, but he doesn't know what his character is going to be yet. And he's like, fuck, they're going to make me the egg man. (laughs) He was totally convinced he was going to have to shave his head and just go out there and be egg man. And he was getting ready for it. That's how Uh, much of a professional he was. He's like, he he was was going to kill this fucking egg man concept. 
but thankfully has there ever been a wrestler known as the Eggman? Not that I know of yet. Not yet. I'm thinking. I don't think so. That one's for free, listeners. Yes. I know some of you were wrestlers. There was Egghead in the '60s Batman. Uh, Yes. Okay. Well, that's not what I asked, is it? So (laughs) maybe he made an appearance on Memphis TV at some point. Who knows? This has been contesting wrestling. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you would like to hear more of our banter, you should check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash contestingwrestling, where once a week we put out a whole other episode for $5 a month. If you don't want to do the whole five bucks a month, but you would like to support us, we have a $1 tier where you don't get access to the premium episodes, but you do get access to these main feed episodes a couple weeks in advance. Um, You should hit us up on Twitter at ContestingW. Let us know how you feel about things. If you are listening to us on a platform that allows liking, rating, subscribing, etc., you should do that and leave a review that's positive if you like it. And if you want to leave a negative review, that's what Twitter's for. Send, send, just send us hate mail on Twitter. You don't have to inscribe it into, you know, the forever, into into eternity with, uh, like, Apple Podcasts, send, bad reviews or anything. Send the hate mail to Evan. He officially deals with all of our hate Yeah, actually, yeah, just said Evan Burke, ETC, Evan Burke, et cetera, Twitter for any of the hate mail relating to contesting wrestling. Uh, I will not care. <laughs> it, it'll be glorious. Uh, the wonders of Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> um... Alrighty, uh, this has been Contesting Wrestling. Thank you so much, everybody. We appreciate you. We love you. I love you. Bye. Rest in peace. Oh. 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 I think we're done. <laughs>